When Jesus' disciples asked him a question, a very specific question, what was the question? What will be the sign of your coming? The answer to the question that he gave, well, he said that there would be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places, among other things. But that wasn't the first words of response to the question. If you look at the text where the disciples asked that specific question, what will be the sign of your coming? His first response was this. Be sure that no one deceives you. Be sure that no one deceives you. Why would, he, why would that be the first response of Christ to that question? And I believe it is this, because at the time of the end, there will be great deception that will be going on across the face of the earth. There will be literal delusion that will be across the face of the earth. And Jesus' warning is to his, was to his disciples, but really to us, to those who would be upon the earth at the last days. Make sure that no one deceives you. The best way that you can guard against deception in your life is to know the truth, amen? To know the truth. And I think that there's one aspect of knowing the truth that will be kind of a safeguard in your life always to the deception that will come into the earth at the end times. And what is that? That is knowing the answer to this question that we're talking about. Knowing the answer to the question and being sure in your heart and your life and in your spirit, the answer to the question, what question is that? What's the question we've been looking at all these weeks? Who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples a question at Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. He said this, who do you say that I am. In other words, this question that we've been answering is not just a question of man, it's Jesus' question that he poses to each and every person. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I believe it's the most important question that can be asked. Now I want to show you something tonight and some of you are familiar with this, and maybe you've even, I've spoken of these things in the past, but I wanna show you something in scripture that helps in answering that question. As we've gone through this study in, in this series, Who is Jesus? One of the things that we've learned is how, how Yahweh God communicates what he's going to do. And one of the ways he does that is he lays out pattern, patterns of things, and then he fulfills those patterns in scripture. One of the things that we've talked about is the fulfillment of prophecy. And one of the things that we've said is that in most of our minds, especially in a Greek and Western mind, we think of prophecy as a foretelling of the future, prophecy, and then fulfillment. So speaking of something that's going to happen and then that being fulfilled. In the Hebraic mind, in the, in the Hebrew mind, the idea of prophecy is this, it's pattern and then fulfillment of the pattern. And sometimes there are multiple fulfillments in that sense. 
Um, and so there's this concept in scripture of the already, but not yet. And so it's like, oh, he's kind of fulfilled that, but there's still more to the story. There's more yet to be fulfilled. So tonight I want to look at a, at a very specific pattern that God laid down and that he fulfilled in perhaps the greatest moment that has ever yet occurred on the face of the earth, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we're going to look at this tonight. I believe it's the greatest p- pattern and fulfillment of that pattern. But before we do that, we have to go back to Genesis to set the stage. Back in Genesis, Adam and Eve were told by God that they, well, they were placed in the garden and they were given free reign over this garden to live and breathe and have their being in Christ and to walk with the Lord in the garden. And they were given one commandment. They were told that they could eat of anything, eat of any tree of the garden, but they were told that there was one tree that was in the midst of the garden that they were commanded not to eat of it. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, what did they do? They ate of the tree. And it's interesting as we've been through these last several years and these last maybe 10, 15 years that one of the largest companies in the world has as their logo the bite taken out of the apple, right? The fruit, the forbidden fruit. And so we have Apple it was Apple computers, but then they dropped the computer and then they're just Apple. And it, wherever you go, you see that. It's kind of a reminder of, yeah, that's the, that's the problem with the whole world right there. Someone took a bite out of the apple, but it was really just disobeying the command of God. You've heard me on this before and I'll weave it in here again. I like to tell the gospel you could, by taking someone to the mall. You can tell the gospel by simply taking someone to the mall. First stop is the Apple store, right? You just stop by the Apple store and you see that big logo up on the thing and you say, look, here's the problem. Here's where it all started. God gave a command to not eat of the tree and man took a bite and disobeyed God's command. And so that's part of the problem. And then, of course, you could take them to Target and you could explain to them further about what sin actually is. The, the word for sin in the Bible is the word harmatia, and it literally means to miss the target or to miss the mark. And we've missed the mark. We've missed the target. We've fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, we haven't even hit, we didn't even hit the bullseye. We didn't even hit the target. And then the next stop in this gospel tour is the gap the gap. And that's where you can explain to them that this sin and missing of the target has now created a chasm between them and God and that this chasm is unreachable. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chasm of sin. It's a separation from the holiness of God and from the glory of God. And that's what we're missing. And then you can take them to forever 21. And you can talk to them about if they'll believe upon Christ and the, the, what he did on the cross and the resurrection, and they'll give their life to, them, to, to God, that they can be saved and they can live forever and ever and ever. Amen? I call it the gospel according to the mall. And, and I don't know if it's going to be forever 21. I have this 
kind of theory. I can't back this up in any possible way. But I think it's going to be forever 33. That's just, I think we're going to be 33 in heaven. Um, anyways, that seems to be a good age because everyone, well, everyone wants to be 20 or 21, forever 21, and that's probably why they named the store that. But you know what? There's a lot I didn't know when I was 21. So I'd rather, I think forever 33 um, is about right. So I want to talk to you about the other tree. That all happened because of the tree that they ate of that they were commanded not to eat of. But there was a tree that was in the garden that they, it seemed like they were permitted to eat of it because they were never told there was no command ever that said, do not eat of the tree of life. Remember, there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were never told that they couldn't eat of the tree of life. And some scholars have believed that, have suggested that this is to say that they could have eaten of it and perhaps they did eat of the tree of life until they sinned and disobeyed God. And what did God do immediately after he brought down the curse upon the woman, upon the man, upon the ground, upon the serpent, and all of it, he cast them out of the garden and he put some creatures in front of the entranceway to that particular part of the Garden of Eden and they're called cherubs, cherubim, right? And remember that? He put cherubim with flaming sword for a specific purpose so as to block the way to the tree of life because God did not want mankind to eat of the tree of life in their fallen state. And so he had another way, another plan that he was going to bring about. Which brings me to these creatures, these cherubim. What are these cherubim? Um, when you say cherub, cherubim is just literally the plural of it. So in Hebrew, if you add I am to the end of a word, that just pluralizes. So you have cherub and cherubim. That would be more than one cherub. The problem with understanding what these cherubs were is that our culture over the last, you know, 100 years, maybe 200 years, has kind of uh, maybe softened the, uh, the look of the cherub. And when you say cherub, a lot of people will think of these chubby little cute Victorian angels with the cute little wings on it. I think I have a picture of it. Is that, is that up there? Yeah. So when you say cherub, that's what people think. And, and they'll even say, that, oh, a cute little cherub, you know, like with a baby or something. And that's all good and great and whatever, but there's, it couldn't be further from reality in terms of what actually a cherub is. A cherub is one of the highest orders of spiritual beings that God created uh, in the unseen realm, and they're very, very powerful. It's, uh, it's, it's of the highest order of heavenly beings. They are seen in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1 and chapter 10, and you see these, uh, we see them, and they're uh, powerful creatures, and they're seen in different manifestations. 
Uh, you see there's, there's a cherub that looks like a man, a cherub that looks like a lion, a, all these different things. We see them in Revelation chapter 4. When, in chapter 4 of Revelation, it's this picture, it's this vision of the heavenly throne room. It's the throne room scene. And around the throne of God, you have these four living creatures, these cherub, these cherubim. And that's very important to understand because this gets to one of the job descriptions of a cherub. They're really guardi- throne guardians. You've heard me on this, right? You've, you, you've heard this. I've, remember we did that whole thing on guardians of, not guardians of the galaxy, guardians of the throne, right? Well, I want to take you to the book of Ezekiel and I want to show you one of these particular cherubs. The book of Ezekiel chapter 28. And in this particular section of scripture, and I'm going to have all these verses up on the screen for you, Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15. The chapter begins and starts out in describing, and it looks like the prophet, it looks like God is speaking to the king of Tyre. But the more the chapter goes on, the more you realize that this can't be talked, it can't be only talking to a, a mortal man, a king, an earthly king, that there's something more here. And there's this idea in scripture and in the way that things are that there's the, the king of that particular nation and then there's a, there's a power behind the king. And so when you realize that he's talking to the king of Tyre and you realize he's, it, it's gotta be something more, he's talking to the power behind the king. So let's pick it up in Ezekiel 28 verse 12. It says this. You were the seal of perfection. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. So this is beginning, it's, we're not talking about a mortal person here anymore. We're talking about another being, a heavenly being in that sense. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Most scholars believe that this is talking about Satan. This is talking about Lucifer. These are all things that are describing Lucifer Lucifer before his fall and after his fall. It is interesting to take a look at these verses because we learn a couple things that he was in the garden of God. We discover that he was beautiful, that he was beautiful. So when you see this verse where it says, every precious stone was your covering, the sardius and the topaz and the diamond, this is literally describing the the beauty of, of this person. And, and the, literally the, the reflection of the glory of God. And then it says some more. It says, your workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. 
This has led many scholars to believe that Satan uh, was, or Lucifer specifically, was uh, a person that uh, was oriented towards music and specifically the worship of God. And some have called him, that you know, said of him that he used to be heaven's worship leader in that sense and, and, and so on and so forth. And you were on the mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the, the fiery stones. But I want to take you back to that verse 14 where it, it's, it, it gives us this particular place that this cherub had. He says, for you were the anointed cherub who covers, who covers. And this gets to the job description of the cherub, of the cherubim, of the living creatures, that they were, they were those that covered the throne of God, that they guarded the throne of God, that they surround the throne of God. Uh, God's throne, God's seat. So we see this um, also not only in the, cher- in the cherubim specifically as they're described in Scripture, but in one of the elements of the tabernacle that we've already gone through in this study, we see this as God established his presence with the people of Israel as God commanded Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. Again, the Ark of the Covenant was the chest that, was, that contained the, the covenant. It contained the, the te- it was called the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. Literally, the Ten Commandments were placed inside this ark, this chest. But on top of the ark was a lid, and this lid actually made the chest into a seat. The lid was actually made out of pure gold, and the instructions for the lid said that it was made to be made of pure gold, and there were to be cherubim on the top of the lid, and they were to have their wings spread out over the top of the lid, and this lid was called the mercy seat. So this chest, the Ark of the Covenant, was God's throne in the midst of Israel, in the tabernacle, and his throne was was a seat, and it was called mercy. I love that. I love that. God has a throne. Jesus is king. He has a throne, and his throne is called mercy. That is just amazing to me, that he is a merciful God. He's a gracious, gracious God. I want to just read these scriptures that are the commandment to to build the Ark of the Covenant because I want these to, I want you to really see these. It's found in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17 through 22. God said this. He said, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half half cubit shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat 
and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And then verse 22, I will have it on your screen, uh, up on the screen behind me. Exodus 25, verse 22, God says, and there I will meet you. There I will meet you. Where? I will meet you at the mercy seat, at the mercy seat. What's great about this is this is where we meet the Lord. We meet the Lord, we come face to face with God at his mercy seat. We come to receive mercy and grace. Many try to come through the commandments and they try to come through keeping the law and man cannot keep the law. You can't keep the 10 commandments and you certainly can't keep the other 613 laws that are recorded in the Old Testament in the Torah. The whole point of the law was that we couldn't do it in, our own, in, our, in and of our own selves. So we come, there has to be another way that we come to God. And he said it right here in Exodus, I will meet you there where at the mercy seat. So I have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. This is actually from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that? And I think they did it. I think Spielberg did a pretty good job. Now, I don't know exactly what the mercy seat looked like, but this seemed to be a pretty good, uh, you know, version of it, looking at the biblical instructions and all the rest of it. Um, and so you have the cherubim, uh, one on either side of that mercy seat. So, And you can see that. Um, now, what would happen with the Ark of the Covenant is, and we went through this a couple weeks ago in the Day of Atonement. On one day of the year was the Day of Atonement. And what would happen, this chest sat in the Holy of Holies, which was a square room inside of the tabernacle, and that was the Holy of Holies. You had the holy place, and then you had the Holy of Holies. And in front of the Holy of Holies, you had a veil that was like the doorway into that room, and no one could go in there. And what it said was, God's mercy seat was in here, and uh, that's what we need, and that's where we need to meet with him, but no one could go in there, except for one person on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement. What he would do is he would make the sacrifices of atonement. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Remember, we talked about that Jesus is the goat. Remember, it's not Tom Brady. It's actually Jesus is the goat. And, uh, and greatest of all time, you, you, you had to be here for that message. But anyways, um, so the sacrifice of atonement, the blood of that sacrifice was taken by the, the high priest and he would go into the Ark of the Covenant and he would sprinkle the blood of the atonement on that mercy seat seven times. And, and again, only one person could do that on one day of the year. So this all pointed forward, this whole thing that God had them doing out in the desert and then eventually in Jerusalem when they came into the land, this whole thing pointed forward to Jesus, the Messiah, who would come and be the perfect sacrifice. He was the Passover lamb. He was the unleavened bread. He was the, feast of, he was the first fruits of that. The church started on Pentecost. He was the sacrifice of atonement. He made atonement for the sins of the world. And so this all took place according to all those patterns. Jesus was, was the Lamb of God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was beaten. He was nailed to the cross. 
And, and then, of course, he was pierced in his side. Remember when the soldier pierced him in his side and the w- blood and water poured out? His blood was, was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we, we poetically say his blood was spilt, and I've read somewhere where someone didn't like that. They didn't like to say Jesus spilled his blood because it sounded like it was an accident, and it wasn't an accident. It was the most purposeful thing that was ever done on the face of the earth. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So when God came in, in humanity and in the person of Jesus and he, and he shed his blood, it was on purpose. He poured out his blood for us on our behalf. So his blood was poured out to atone for, for you, for me, to cover the sins of whosoever would call upon the Lord for salvation. And there he was hanging on a tree doing this, blood pouring down. So in that sense, he becomes, the, the cross becomes the tree of life. Jesus becomes the fruit of the tree of life. John, Jesus actually recorded it this way. John recorded Jesus' words from John chapter six, the day after he had fed the 5,000 and they chased him across the lake because they wanted a, another free lunch and they wanted to make him king. He was already king, but they wanted to make him king. Uh, because why? Because he made lunch for free right? Everybody wants a free lunch and let's go back and get another one the next day. Jesus says, I know why you've come, but what you really need to do is you need to pursue that which is for eternity. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And that was the hard saying that Jesus delivered to them. So he becomes the fruit of the tree, the cross, the tree of life. Jesus sacrifice the fruit of the tree of life. And if anyone would partake of Christ, if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have what? You have everlasting life. You go on living forever and ever and ever. Now there's something interesting that happened the moment Jesus died. You're familiar with this from the gospels, right? The moment Jesus died in the temple, not far away from where Jesus was hanging on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn and it just kind of didn't rip. The Bible says specifically that it was torn from top to bottom as if to say that the Lord on high ripped that thing down the middle, amen? And from what my study has told me that the veil that was hanging in Jerusalem when Jesus was on the cross was a very thick veil that I don't think you could even get a few guys in there and rip that thing. And certainly not from top to bottom. And so the veil in the temple, the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit, the veil was torn from top to bottom. You say, so? Well, what happened was that literally God, at the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit, opened up the way. He tore the veil and opened up the direct access to what? The mercy seat. Amen. Can you imagine in Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant in there, the veil there, and now it's torn and now it's just laying open and now, look, no one can go in there, but we can see in there. What Jesus did, what God did is he opened up the way. He opened up, he gave every person access by virtue of the the sacrifice of Christ. He gave every person access to the Holy of Holies and literally to the throne of God and to the mercy seat. Amen. So that we can boldly, you know, it's put this way in the New Testament, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, the mercy seat. Amen? So this is all 
what happened. Um, now, I want to fast forward. So Jesus dies on the cross. We know that, that his body was taken off the cross. He was placed in the tomb of a rich man. near the, uh, uh, Joseph of, of Arimathea took the body and put the body in a nearby tomb, and it was the tomb of a rich man. And the stone was rolled into place, and you know the whole story. We're not going through the whole story of the burial and resurrection, but because of what Jesus had said about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days, those had gone to, to Pontius Pilate and got him to put a, a regiment of troops in front of the, the tomb. So you had troops, you had Roman soldiers, you had the, the, the stone rolled in place and you had it fully sealed, the tomb of Jesus, right? So G, that's where Jesus' tomb, Jesus' body was in the tomb on that Friday, all day Saturday, and then it was going into Sunday, the early hours. Now, what I want to do is I want to read this passage of Scripture in John chapter 11. You say that was all kind of the introduction, but we're like literally to the end of the message too. So, amen. I want to read this passage in John chapter 20, verse 11. Let me just set this up. This is after the women have already come to the tomb. They already discovered that it was empty. They already ran back and got the disciples. The disciples had a race back to the tomb. John, of course, won. We know that because John told us that he beat Peter back to the tomb. Um, because you can brag about your accomplishments only if you're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing scripture, right? Um, and then everyone left. Everyone left the tomb. All they know is the tomb is empty. No one has seen Jesus. And there's one person that remains at the tomb. And her name is Mary. And we pick it up at verse 11. It says this, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Women, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So Mary comes, or Mary remains at the tomb. Everyone else has gone away. And 
there's been a lot, there's been some things said about why, uh, you know, she was the only one left. And one of the things I think that seems to make the most sense is that Jesus had saved Mary out of just tremendous bondage and sin. And so much so that she was just, just so captivated, so given to the Lord, so adored him, so loved him. So she was one that went early in the morning that morning. She was the one that stayed late. The text tells us that she was weeping and she looked back into the tomb. And so I want to draw your attention to verse 12 back in that text, John 20, verse 12. And this is what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John records that she saw. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. What was she seeing? What did she see? Well, first they spoke to her and said, she, they said, why are you crying? What are you, what are you doing? And they said, they, 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 they spoke to Mary. The angel spoke to her because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, first I want to talk about the fact that there were two angels. There were two angels, I believe, for a couple of reasons. Number one is because the law of witnesses in Deuteronomy 19 says that the testimony of two or three establishes or verifies a truth. This was the this was the law. This was the law for capital punishment. You could not put anyone to death under capital punishment unless there were two eyewitnesses. So there's capital punishment in the scripture, right? There's capital punishment. But only if, you know, for the specific sin that would elicit capital punishment, and only with two eyewitnesses, two or three. So that, that's some pretty steep standards, right? So here you have two angels verifying to Mary that Jesus is not there, that, that he's alive, that he's been made alive. But also, I believe that the position of the angels spoke something, that they were literally in the position of the mercy seat, the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. You had, it, okay, so the Holy Spirit has John specifically say, and it's almost echoing the passage in Exodus we read, one on one side and the other on the other side. And this is exactly what John is saying. The Holy Spirit, I believe, saying one at the foot where Jesus was laying and one at the head. And the previous passage has told us that the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in was literally there in the center on that place, that slab where Jesus had rested, where they laid his body. So what do you have here? You literally have a visual fulfillment of the mercy seat 
of the top, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. You literally have it. Mary is literally seeing it in, in front of her. Of course, she's distraught. She probably doesn't know what in the world's happening. But it's recorded for us under the inspiration of the Spirit, and so we can see what is happening here. And so we have a fulfillment of the mercy seat. Now, it's interesting because no one knows what's happened to the mercy seat. No one knows what has happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So there's this kind of you know, there's stories and, you know, then, then you have the 20th century roll around Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you have Indiana Jones down there digging in some, going down, remember, snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? <laughs> right? Remember, he pulls that Ark of the Covenant out of there and then it goes back and forth between him and the Nazis and the Nazis. Then you have that scene where they go to that island and they, you know, open up the lid and the, Spirits come out and the guy, you know, fries and the eyeballs come out and all that stuff. And then God swoops it all up like a vacuum cleaner and cleans it all up, puts the lid back on. Then they take it to Washington and put it in a warehouse. (laughs) Right? So you walk out of that movie in 1983 thinking, okay, great. The Ark of the Covenant is sitting in D.C. somewhere in some warehouse. (laughs) Let's get that thing out. Then there's these other stories. In fact, we were just talking about this. There's another theory about where, you know, the Ethiopians have the Ark of the Covenant in some lake that's protected. It's an island in the center of a lake. And they got, the, you know, this particular tribe of Christians or whatever that has the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know. Let me tell you here tonight. I know where the real thing is. It's been fulfilled in Jesus and his resurrection. And, and God is sitting on his throne. Jesus is sitting at his throne at the right hand of the Father and he's sitting on a throne called mercy. Amen? And we can meet him there. Now, in 2012, I had been teaching through the Gospel of John and I had taught this passage and I don't know. I just, you know, it says young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. And I don't know if I was a young man or an old man or whatever, but I had a vision of this verse in my head, in my mind. And it was so vivid. It was so specific that I remember thinking to myself, this has to be, this isn't just like a vision, like just you just to slough off and just, oh, that wasn't that nice. It was so specific and so detailed that I said, man, this needs to be a painting. This needs to be a painting. So I called up my friend, a member of our church. His name is Russ. He's one of the top artists for EA Games. If you've ever played Madden football, you have seen Russ's work. In fact, he's done the MMA game, EA. He did, he did almost all the characters. 
The coaches in Madden, he's done a lot of that. I met up with him at Chipotle. We sat down, had a burrito. And I said, I said, Russ, I've got this crazy thing that I want to tell you about. I've got this vision that needs to be a picture. It needs to be a painting. And it's so specific, it's so exact in my head that I want to, if you are willing, I want to work with you and I want, we're going we're gonna to bring this into reality. And I spelled it all out and I, I, we had notes and we just was writing down like sheets of notes of just very specific things. And I said, so what do you think? He says, I'm in, I'm in. So we began to meet and he began to do the, I guess I'm kind of like the concept artist and he's like the actual artist. And what we came together and, 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 and brought into life was a painting that I entitled The Mercy Seat. And it's very interesting because the year was 2012 when all this happened and the verse of scripture is John 20, verse 12. And... So anyways, do we have the picture? Oh, you've, you've had it up there the whole time? Yeah. Oh, so you stole my thunder? Oh, okay. So everybody's like, yeah, we're, we're looking at it. What are you talking about? Okay. Um, it's, kinda, it's supposed to be like a reveal, like, you know? Okay. So anyways, um, so this is it, the mercy seat. And... and uh, I want to take you back to the verse of Scripture. You can leave it up there, the, the painting. Don't go to the verse. I want to take you back to Exodus 25, verse 22. Because at the end of the instructions, what did uh, God tell Moses about the instructions? After he s- said everything about how wide the thing was supposed to be, the, the, the mercy seat and the gold and the cherubim and the face, the wings and all of it. In verse 22, he said, and there I will meet you. Where? At the mercy seat. And there I will meet you. Okay. So John chapter 20, verse 12, this is what she sees or something like this. Not, not this, but this is just our rendering, right? He turns around and there's a guy. She thinks it's the gardener. He speaks to her. What are you, what are you crying about? Oh, they've taken my Lord. If you know where he is, I'll carry him away. She's a very zealous person. Can you imagine? She's gonna go, she's gonna go carry the body. She would have probably done it too. She would have figured a way. I will carry him away. She doesn't know. She thinks it's the gardener until Jesus says her name and he says, Mary. And at that moment, her eyes are open to see that it's Jesus. And at that moment, she becomes the first eyewitness of the resurrection. A woman, a person who had been delivered out of some terrible, terrible things, but now devoted to Jesus. She becomes the first eyewitness of the resurrection. And this all happens 
simultaneous to what she saw inside the tomb, which was the fulfillment of the mercy seat, which is what, Jesus, what God said to Moses, and there I will meet you. I think that this is an amazing, amazing thing that God has put in his word. And I think it reinforces something that you all know, you're all here, you know this, but something that we need to like doubly know, that we need to know, know, that where is it that we meet Christ? Where is it that we meet the Lord? We meet with him at his mercy seat and we have that opportunity every day of our lives. And so no matter where you go, no matter what you may find that you've gone off the path or dabbled into or whatever, the Lord is still calling and he wants you to come back. He wants you to come to his mercy seat. He wants you to walk with him at his mercy seat. And I will close with this. I will close with this. Jesus gave a very specific promise to the overcomers of the church of Laodicea. You know the church that, that's the church where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? If any man hears my voice, I will open the door and I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. And, and, and if there's any little passage of scripture that just show, so much shows the heart of God for us. It's this invitation for us to open up the door. Jesus is on the outside. He wants to come on the inside. He wants to come and be with us. He wants to dine with us and us to dine with him. He wants us to have fellowship with, with him. And that happens at his mercy seat, which is literally his throne. Now, what is the promise? There's a promise given to every church, every group that would overcome. And those promises are all of ours collectively, right? Because that seven churches pictures the completion of the church because seven is the number of completion. The seventh church is Laodicea. The promise is this, to he who overcomes, I will grant to you to sit on my throne with me. Amen? So not only do we come to the throne, we come to the mercy seat, we literally are invited to overcome and to come and be with Jesus and sit with him on his throne, which is called mercy. Amen? Amen? So Christian, never ever forget it. Never forget it. You know, the cross is kind of the, has become the symbol, and I don't have my cross on me. I wear a cross that Mary Jo brought, bought me um, uh, it's my koa wood cross from Hawaii, uh, from Nahuku. I don't have it on me because I took it off to have their x-rays and I haven't put it back on. The cross has become the symbol, right, when you see the cross. But literally, it could just as easily be the mercy seat, the fulfillment of the mercy seat. Amen? Amen? So be encouraged. Who is Jesus? Oh, well, this is the end of the series. This is the end. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He's sitting on his throne and he invites you to come, dine with him, and sit down with him on his mercy seat. 